Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. As a parent, you will do anything to keep your children safe. For some, that means all the right schools, the best neighborhoods, and a perfectly curated friend group. On June 23, 1984, a young girl was brutally attacked in what was supposed to be the perfect neighborhood. A girl whose family thought that they were providing the best for their children, only to have one die at the hands of an unlikely murderer. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Kirsten Marina Costas, born July 23, 1968, was born into a family of means and stature in their small suburban town of Orinda, California. Her parents wanted the best for their children. Moving from Oakland to Orinda to find a safe community and a good school, with her father Arthur excelling as an executive with 3M, and her mother staying home to tend to Kirsten and her younger brother Peter. Kirsten herself was who brought all of the energy and sunshine into her home. Where her parents were quiet and reserved, she was energetic and exuded love and life. A member of her school's varsity swim team, Kirsten was a part of the only friend clique that counted the group that classmates called the Loud Crowd. But probably most importantly, Kirsten was a cheerleader. In a school where the girls were judged by 20 and told their fate in an Academy Award-style ceremony, Kirsten was one of the names in the coveted envelopes. Considered the perfect cheerleader by one of the judges, she was given flowers and kisses as if she had just won the award of a lifetime. Basically, Kirsten was the it girl at Miramont High School, and in the spring of 1984, she was asked to join the Bobo Links, or the Bobbies, an elite sorority-like organization that was comprised of 30 or so of the best-looking, most popular girls in school. Which is why her mother answered a strange call on the night of June 21st, 1984, and did exactly as the caller told her. Kirsten was attending cheerleading camp and living in a dorm at St. Mary's College when Barrett Costas got a phone call from an unknown girl saying she was a fellow Bobby. She said she knew Kirsten was at cheer camp, but wanted to ask if she would be attending the initiation dinner that was set to take place on June 23rd. Barrett said she would, and the voice on the other end said that a car would come to pick up her daughter that Saturday. So when the 23rd rolled around, 
Arthur, Barrett, and Peter left the home for a potluck while Kirsten waited for the Bobby to come pick her up. At around 8.30 p.m., a honk can be heard outside and Kirsten walked out to the mustard-colored Pinto and got inside. An hour later, an angry Kirsten rang the doorbell of a stranger's home in Moraga. And when the Alexander couple answered the door, she asked if she could use their phone because the friend that she was out with had, quote, got weird on her. When they looked up, they saw a 15-year-old girl lurking out on the path and invited Kirsten inside. She didn't seem scared, more agitated than anything. And when no one answered at her home, Alexander Arnold offered to drive her back to a neighbor's home in Orinda. She accepted and the pair got into his car. But as they drove, Arnold noticed that same mustard-colored pinto tailing them. Though Kirsten seemed unbothered, the teenage girl assured the kind stranger that she would be okay. As Kirsten walked away from Alexander's car, he saw a fast-moving figure approach Kirsten and the shimmer of a blade come down upon the young girl. Wounded, Kirsten managed to run to the neighbor's home as the unknown attacker ran back to the Pinto and sped off. Alexander attempted to follow the car for a half an hour before losing sight of it as a neighbor, a man named Arthur Hillman, was alerted by Kirsten's blood-curdling screams and ran out to try and help her. She collapsed into his arms after screaming, help me, I've been stabbed. He tore open her shirt to try and find the source of the blood and tried to stop it from gushing out of her while simultaneously trying to perform mouth-to-mouth on the unconscious girl. He did all he could as his son called 911 and paramedics arrived. Kirsten was pronounced dead an hour later. When the Costas returned home from their dinner, they were greeted by a street completely blocked by emergency responders. They had no idea that everyone was there because their daughter had just been murdered. It seemed like a pretty easy case to solve given how much was known and how many witnesses were involved. But as time passed and the town began to grieve, the case seemed to get more and more complicated. Everyone was worried and when rumors flew that the killer came to Kirsten's funeral, all local teenage girls were told to travel in pairs or to stay home altogether. Some thought it was a drug-fueled murder. Others thought Satanism must have been at play because no one wanted to believe that a cold-blooded killer might just be lurking in their very safe community. The community began raising money for a reward fund that soon totaled around $50,000. And Kirsten's friends and classmates started making signs with the killer's description and plastering the entire town with them. Still, no arrest was made. Then, like they always do, rumors started to spread amongst the teenagers of the town. According to sources, while in Hawaii on a senior trip, a name started to circulate between the students. And when the parents arrived at the airport to pick them all up, began circulating amongst the adults. According to the rumor, there was a young girl named Bernadette Prodi, a new member of the Bobbies, who fit the description of the killer and her father Raymond owned a mustard-colored pinto. The youngest of six born to older parents, Bernadette felt lost and unheard in her own household. She was embarrassed about home, which didn't look as modern and expensive as everyone else's, and tried her best to fit in with the other girls throughout her entire young life. Like Kirsten, Bernadette has spent most of her free time preparing for those intense cheer tryouts. But unlike Kirsten, Bernadette's name wasn't one of the ones in the envelopes. She was on the cusp of popularity, considered unpopular by some and popular in her own way by others. 
and many crudely described her as a loser in school. She became obsessed with the notion of acceptance and being accepted the way girls like Kirsten were. To her, Kirsten was elite. And when her best friend got into Elanthus, another sorority-like group in school, and Bernadette didn't, getting into the Bobbies, which she considered second best, she saw this as the final failure and blow that she couldn't quite get over. So Bernadette was brought in for questioning, and when asked about what she was doing the night Kirsten was killed, she claimed she was babysitting for a family down the road. Not bothering to check if her story was true, Bernadette was given a lie detector test, which she passed, and she was cleared as a suspect. The summer continued on and the Costas were fed up with how long it was taking to solve their daughter's case. So, they hired a private investigator of their own named Elliot Friedman. Elliot suspected that the murder was a drug-induced killing, or one bore from unrequited homosexual advances, and ultimately said the motive had to be fear of humiliation. Working with that, Elliot started to recheck all of the alibis the police had already cleared. And when he did, he realized that Bernadette Prodi had been lying. He took his findings to police, who simply replied that it couldn't be her because she passed the lie detector test. He was steadfast the test must have been wrong, and the FBI were contacted to reread the results. They came back saying conclusively that Bernadette had been lying. On December 11th, Bernadette was called in for an interview with an FBI agent that was assisting with the case. Initially, she stuck to her babysitting story, even after they told her that they knew she was lying. But when the agent read off the psychological profile of the killer, saying they lacked remorse for what they did, Bernadette responded, it sounds like me. She then asked the agent if he ever considered the fact that a 16-year-old girl might be more afraid of bad publicity than going to prison and said she needed to go home to think. Because they didn't have enough information to arrest her, they agreed and let her walk out of the police station. She went home, asked her mother if they could talk, but Elaine Prody said she was too tired, went to sleep, and awoke the next morning with a letter for her mother. She told her to wait 30 minutes to read it, and Elaine set an egg timer and went back to reading her Bible. When the timer went off, she picked up the piece of paper and read her daughter's full confession to murder. After calling the school and picking up their daughter, the Prodies brought her straight to the sheriff's office where Bernadette gave a 90-minute confession. According to her story, she planned to take Kirsten Costas to a party to befriend the girls that she idolized. But Kirsten got angry when she was told that there was no actual Bobby's dinner for the new recruits. The pair started to fight, and that's when Kirsten fled to the Arnold home. When asked what Kirsten did that made Bernadette so angry, she responded, I have a lot of inferiority feelings, and I really have bad feelings about myself. I lost for cheerleader. I didn't get into the club I wanted to. I didn't get on yearbook. So I don't know. I just felt bad. A press conference was called to tell the community that, after six months, 4,000 man-hours, 1,000 leads, 800 interviews, and 750 pintos, they had arrested teenager Bernadette Prodi. Three months later, Bernadette was in a courtroom packed with the citizens of Orinda. She admitted to making the false phone call to the Costas, to picking up Kirsten that night, how they smoked pot together before getting into their fight, how she followed Kirsten in the Pinto just to make sure that she got home safe, but then used a foot and a half long knife to stab Kirsten to death. 
When she finished and lost Alexander Arnold, who was tailing her, she went back home, got rid of the knife, and went on a walk with her mother and dog. The next day, she washed the knife and returned it to the kitchen. Her sister took the witness stand and, in an attempt to prove that the crime wasn't premeditated, testified that Bernadette kept that knife in her car at all times to slice vegetables at lunchtime. In the end, Bernadette Prodi was sentenced to a maximum of nine years for second-degree murder. She was let out in 1992 after just seven years and since then has changed her name and left California. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on June 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.